Well, hello and welcome everyone. Welcome to the LSE for this online event, which forms part of this year's LSE Festival, Shaping the Post-COVID World. The LSE Festival is a week of virtual events which are free and open to all about the direction of the world that the world could and should potentially take after the COVID crisis. And we particularly focus on how social science research can shape that. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Festival. This online event is being recorded and we hopefully will be making it available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. My name is Justin Parkhurst. I'm an associate professor of global health policy in the LSE Department of Health Policy. I'm also currently the chair of the LSE's Global Health Initiative and I'll be chairing today's event. And I'm very pleased uh, in my role as chair to be welcoming three expert colleagues in health policy to the LSE today. Dr. Joseph Figueres is the director and co-founder of the European Observatory on Health Systems and Policies. In addition to WHO, he has served ma major multilateral agencies such as the European Commission and the World Bank, and has worked as a policy advisor in more than 40 countries in the European region and beyond. Dr. Lucy Kanya is an assistant professorial research fellow at the LSE and is currently part of the LSE's team working on the African Health Observatory Platform on Health Policies and Systems, or AHOP. Lucy has a health economics and policy background with experience working in Sub-Saharan Africa and has previously worked on evaluation of health financing programs in Kenya and Uganda. And Dr. Matthias Wismar is program manager at the European Observatory on Health Systems and Policies. He is leading, managing and developing studies in face-to-face -face dissemination and knowledge brokering events. Matthias has worked extensively on COVID-19 health systems responses and governance. Since October, 2020, he has led weekly COVID-19 response webinars discussing a wide range of health systems responses to the pandemic. He holds a doctorate in political science from Goethe University in Frankfurt in Germany. But now I will hand over to Lucy who will be moderating today's discussion. So over to you, Lucy. Thank you very much uh, for the introductions, Justin, and welcome again to all our participants. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected almost every area of our society, but perhaps none so dramatically as our health systems. The pandemic has tested many countries' health systems to and beyond their limits and highlighted the interdependence of health with other sectors at both the national and global levels. Today, we come together to reflect on what lessons can be learned from the pandemic response so far to develop more resilient health systems. What must be done to strengthen health systems to respond to a future threat of this kind? As of today, we have lost approximately 2.5 million people worldwide to the virus. And considering direct and indirect impacts of COVID-19, the full impact of this loss on, on, on the health systems is yet to be quantified. While we now have a number of vaccines that will hopefully allow us to move towards some sense of normality, these face myriad issues, including concerns around equitable distribution, financing, hesitancy, and the related infodemics. However, the pandemic has also been a catalyst for innovation, for collaboration and change in health service delivery. To help us reflect on the year that has been and what we can take into the post-COVID world, our panelists today will discuss the governance of health systems, communication, financing, and innovation. But before I bring them on, we would like the audience to participate in this poll. So please take a minute to reflect and respond. Uh, we will share the poll results thereafter. 
So the question is, what has been the most important challenge COVID-19 has posed to global health systems? Is it health systems governance, communication, health financing, or innovation? Thank you very much for participating in this poll. Um, as usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to our speakers during this event. And instead of a traditional Q&A at the end, we'd be keen to hear from you throughout the event so our speakers can react to your thoughts and questions in real time. Please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen to join in the conversation. And please include your name and affiliation if possible. Now, I'd like to kick off the discussion between Joseph and Matthias by asking you both to reflect on the challenges we have faced in the past year. So thinking about the COVID-19 pandemic, Joseph and Matthias, if you were talking to yourself a year ago about the current state of the world, what would you say? <laughs> That's a tricky question to start, Lucy. <laughs> That's a very tricky one. Actually, I've been thinking about that uh, a bit. Uh, I've been thinking about what, what I would really say to myself. Uh, and I think there are two things I'd like to say to myself. There are two main lessons. Mm -hmm. And two main lessons that correspond to my two sides, basically. Our two sides, if I say so, Matthias, you and I. We are scientists. We, we communicate. We do knowledge brokering. That's what the observatory is about. Uh, so we are scientists on one hand, and on the one hand we do the research and we do the communication and knowledge brokering. As a scientist, I think, I know what you agree, Matthias, it's humility. Humility. Mm -hmm. I, I, do, I do think, I did think, I do think I'm a humble man, but, uh, but I think in spite of the enormous breakthroughs we had with, uh, with science, with the new vaccines, treatments, the virus has really called our bluff in many areas. I think we haven't been, we haven't, we have worked with a lot of uncertainty. We haven't really quite managed to put the right evidence in place and particularly communicate it well, communicate that uncertainty well. So on my second side, I suppose as a knowledge broker, it also is humility. <laughs> humility because I never quite realized how much although I'm a knowledge broker as well, how much the politics, yeah. the cognitive biases, the need for the policy makers to make those trade, important trade-offs mm -hmm. between what is the evidence and the science and what it is, uh, the values, what it is, other aspects apart from uh, the, 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 the intervention for the virus, uh, aspects like in the economy, uh, cultural values, the, 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 the views about personal freedom and so on. So I never quite realized how important these elements would it be? So again, as a knowledge broker, uh, humility would be very important. And I think actually, let me stop about the humility, but just say the last bit on humility, which is the virus has really been an agent of humility for all of us. He really has called the bluff, has called the populists, the bluff of the populists. The, the virus doesn't, doesn't pay attention to arrogant scientists, doesn't pay attention to spinning politicians. The virus keeps going on its own way. So I think that's been a good lesson for all of us. I hope we learn from it. Matthias. Yes, uh, you know, I think uh, the humility is uh, pretty good, but I would like to add another aspect to it. I think that we need to think about the precautionary principle here. Because, yes, humility, I think this particular day a year ago was almost a turning point for many of us perceiving this uh, large pandemic. The carnival was... Uh, Two weeks ago, 10 days ago, people were returning from 
from their skiing holidays, actually. And in Inside, we know they have been participating in super spreader events in France and in Austria. And on these days, you know, uh, mushrooming out of a sudden where the infections, the reported infections, and a week later, actually, the dying started uh, quite heavily in some, some of these countries. So we knew there is the infection. We cannot exclude it anymore from, from the continent. Actually, it's here. And what we knew from China, you know, and other places, we knew it's going to be serious. But no idea how serious, actually. You know, how, no idea you know, how will... Is, is it because we have a different context here in, in, in Europe, because we have different health systems, because we have universal health coverage almost across the whole continent? Will we react differently? Would it be the same? You know, even the genetic disposition may be different and play, play a role in this. So it was very difficult for me and I think for many others to predict what does it mean that the pandemic is now in, in Europe. And so I think humility is the right approach because uh, we... We, we need to be very cautious, but I think also as soon as we see that there's something potentially really serious on the horizon, you know, we have to be very cautious and we need to take this serious. And I think we need to communicate this uh, serious. And this coming back to what you said earlier to the communication and trust, I think we will go uh, into more detail. So humility, humility, yes, but also being precautionary. Yeah. Well, thank you very much both. And I agree with you. It's been a humbling experience for all of us. And as Joseph says, rightly says, for scientists to actually come to a point where we say, we don't know. And uh, even the leaders say, we don't know. You know, we have no answers. That's been very humbling. Uh, and, and, and I think an opportunity for the whole world, for the globe to move together on this one. Uh, at this point, I would like to share the poll results. Let's see whether they could say without vote, Matthias. What well, do we want, Matthias? We can we can go home now. It's all fixed. Just. Exactly. <laughs> well done. That uh, kills my storyline. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We we both voted governance. Well, he voted behind vote for you. We only have one mouse here, but uh, yeah, yeah, we agree. Yes. We agree with that. Well done, the audience. They can continue. They can join. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. You have to comment on it, Lucy. What do you think? Are you surprised with it? No, I'm not. I actually voted health systems governance as well. And because I know it's a very big issue. Uh, and actually, that's where I want us to start our discussion with. Uh, what, that's the topic I want us to start with this evening. Uh, so relating to the governance of health systems. So I think I'll start with Matthias. What have we learned in the past year on the governance of health systems that should inform decisions around strengthening health systems for the future? I think three things. And the first one comes already with a poll that governance is super important in, in, in Europe, that governance, governance really makes a, a difference. And I mean, we've been discussing why has Europe been hit so hard by the pandemic, despite, you know, all the richness and all the advances and universal health coverage. And uh, a lot of different theses have been discussed, like, for example, political system, geography, island, and so on. And while there might be some truth in it, if you look at, across the whole European region of WHO, you have all sorts of political systems. You have islands, and it hasn't helped the islands actually much, I would, I would say. I think it's really the governance if we look into um, Europe. And that's, for me, the first, the first um, uh, conclusion I would draw from, from this one. And that's something which we need to project into the future, that whatever we think about, will we have a new financing reform? We need to talk 
governance as well. If we have a health workforce reform, we need to talk governance as well. If we want to implement more equitable um, uh, provision of services, better access, we need to talk the, the governance uh, over. So that's that's the, the perfect Isn't one. governance a bit of a buzzword, uh, Matthias? I do agree. I always, uh, you know, you don't know what to say, and we say governance. I know you're a specialist in governance. That's why I dare to share, to, to, to challenge you. But governance, the solution for everything. But what do we mean by governance in the context of COVID? I think we can look at it into two ways, and then it becomes very concrete. As an analytical perspective, asking, you know, what are the key dimensions of governance? And then I would talk about issues such as transparency, accountability, participation, integrity, capacity. So when we want to analyze things, but if we want to talk about in very practical terms, you know, what are the strategies actually to, to strengthen governance, you know, then you come to quite detailed things. And one of the one of the most important things, you know, and there are plenty of strategies among them, I think is the leadership and the decision-making. And we have seen this in many, many facets, uh, that leadership and decision-making, effective decision-making really makes uh, a big, big difference, Joseph. Yes, indeed. I, I, uh, to me, actually, one, one of the aspects on this leadership, um, and I know it's a bit of sort of, we always talk about that, is this participative leadership. But in this case, mm -hmm. it's been the case. When you look, it's, it's been very much. If you look at, uh, at New Zealand, you look at your own country, Matthias, your, um, your, your chancellor. You know, uh, uh, you know th this kind of humility in leadership, this kind of transparency in this leadership, this kind of participation of civil society, yeah. this kind of uh, the New Zealanders, for instance, do have a number of mechanisms to get civil society on board. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the kind of human resources, human resources, mm -hmm. it's important that we involve, it's, it's so obvious that they have to be involved in this job making, but really they save the day. They save the day. It's not enough to go out and applaud them every day. And we stop applauding them. We still continue, should continue applauding them. Yeah. So to the, the doctors and the nurses and so on. But how much we involve them in the process. Yeah. So part of that governance, isn't it, is how we bring them on board in that thing. But let me add one thing. To me, to me, the key issue, what do you think about that? Because we do a lot of research on that, Matthias is the coordination, the, what, what do you think about what's happening in centralized, centralized countries? And particularly, Matthias, on the horizontal co coordination. I'm, I'm, I'm struck by, by uh, countries where it was the prime minister communicating, mm -hmm. other countries where it was some public health institute, the, 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 the leader communicating, in some place was the Ministry of Health. Yes. So we have seen as well a very interesting debate on horizontal coordination. Who is leading? Who's governing here? And what works better and worse? What do you think about that? So it's a tricky question. It's a tricky question. I will have a person, Lucy. I, I can tell you. I'm taking him by surprise. I'm I, I try to disentangle this a little bit, Joseph, this, this little analytical mess you're making. So number one, <laughs> I think we've seen in many countries that chancellors, prime ministers, presidents, first ministers, you know, took center stage and took leadership. And I think it was the right thing to do in the first place because there are certain trade-offs between health, education, transport, economy within a cabinet. Only the prime minister can resolve or can mitigate, actually. So that's for the start. And we've seen some, some great leadership examples in, in Europe, actually. And you were talking about my country that was particularly good, I think, especially in the beginning. 
And um, some people have even said, look at this. This is health in all policies. But unfortunately, that is the moment where things sometimes got terribly wrong. Because in a little bit polemic way, you could argue, in many countries, we have seen all policies in health. Because in the end, the Minister of Health or the Secretary of State for Health, they didn't really have, they didn't pull the shots, you know, it were the others. And if you look at some of the messes, you know, when it comes to lockdown measures, you know, like opening and closing schools, opening and closing borders, the health minister in many countries was almost absent. And then we have the other little mess, if I may say so, the coordination across the different levels, you know. Um, in, 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 in the Russia, Russian Federation, for example, we have the president plus the mayor of London coordinating this. Excuse yeah. me, that's very nice, but where's the health part? Gentlemen, I, I want to steer you just a little uh, to say something very quickly about then, you know, building on what you're discussing now, the global governance of health in relation to COVID-19. Now you're talking at country level. Uh, let's move it up a little higher for just a minute or two. What, what are the challenges and opportunities for these institutions in the future? Let me take this one, uh, Matthias. So, no, I know you know more, but there you are. Um, uh, I'm very excited, Lucy. I'm very excited. Uh, there are a number of commissions. Actually, there's an overcrowding of commissions now. Many of them are going to be looking at that. You have the Lancet Commission on the response to COVID um, with Jeffrey Sachs at the helm. We have the new commission, actually, uh, by um, Dr. Tedros, uh, that's looking at, at the health and the economy issues as well post-COVID with uh, Marina Maxucato, who's been leading a researcher in, 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 a, in a naval university uh, of the LSE uh, on, on these areas. Uh, Dr. Tedros as well, our, our director, director general of WHO, has had another commission on the, on, with Ellen Clark, former prime minister of New Zealand, on the, on the response to the pandemic. And I'd like to mention, of course, because I'm in the scientific board, co-chair of the, of the Monty Commission, the Pan-European Commission on Health and Sustainable Development. Mm -hmm. I mentioned, you know, this is not just a shopping list, uh, Lucy. I, it, it's a useful shopping list for our uh, participants today to have a look at those, because I have the impression, I know, by seeing some of the results of being part of one, that a lot of the emphasis is going to be how do we get working together. Listen, it's, it's not an issue of weather. Is when and how fast can we do it? I mean, the virus, we know that for years, but the virus has reminded us that, that viruses, germs, cross boundaries, number one. I know it's very obvious, and we, we know it, but we haven't done enough on that. We know as well it's not just viruses. Economic crisis cross boundaries. Refugees cross boundaries. How well we did on global governance in, in, in this prior crisis. And now... The virus has reminded us again that we have to strengthen that. And strengthening that means many, many things. I, there's, there's now a real strong push towards the role of the Joint International Health Regulations, mm -hmm. strengthening those up, uh, increasing uh, some of those on the transparency aspects and so on, and the accountability aspects. Mm -hmm. At the European Union, we have both the WHO and the, the, the European in Europe, I mean, we have both the WHO Regional Office and the European Union working very closely together. Van der Leyen came up with this, how do we strengthen the European Centre for Disease Control from going from risk assessment to risk management, yeah. the role of EMA, for instance. Mm -hmm. We've seen as well global governance on purchasing, for instance, the joint procurement. I know it's been a lot of criticism 
towards the European Union and the joint procurement of vaccines and so on. But for us, seeing is a really leap forward in terms of access, in terms of access to new, to new treatments, in terms of, of value for money, in having, you know, 300 million uh, people purchasing together. So basically, uh, we see development in global governance. We're going to see those. We're going to see that it's not an option, but a must that countries have to come together. Listen, somehow the virus is a disaster, but it's a disaster waiting to happen. Look at the other one was waiting to happen, antimicrobial resistance. Antimicrobial resistance is a matter of, so like the virus, of one health. We know it's all about the environment, it's about animal health and human health together. So on AMR, we make some progress, but if we don't work together, if we don't regulate antibiotics together, if we don't agree together globally whether we give antibiotics to our cows and chicken, and we regulate that, yeah, exactly. we need those governance arrangements. Sorry, don't you agree, Matthias? I, I do agree, but you know, at the same time, while there is the drive towards more coordination, I also see that there's a drive towards more conflict. And uh, talking about the vaccine, actually, you know, there's... Um, a lot of conflict around the distribution of the, the vaccine, but also countries are using the vaccine to gain influence in, in countries. I think that's also very clear. We have only seen uh, yesterday, actually, that the Italian government, with based on EU regulation, has blocked the export of uh, vaccine to Australia, I think it was. And I think uh, there you see that there are concrete conflicts and that there is still vaccine egoism despite all the acknowledged needs to, to work together. So I think there are both dynamics at the moment at work, the need of closer collaboration, but also there are drifting apart in terms of uh, fields of influence. I mean, we cannot accept, Lucy, we cannot accept, I mean, uh, some of the knee-jerk reactions we saw at the beginning in this European Union of closing borders and so on, and, and some of the countries going against Schengen principles, we do need the role of this European Union to coordinate the member states, to have common arrangements, common agreements. Now there's a whole debate about the vaccine passport and so on. I'm not going to take a position on that. Maybe, Matthias, you want to do that. Hot one. But why don't we get, Lucy, the views of the participants? By now, I hope they warm up. Exactly. And they're very happy about what we say, so let's have some debate. Exactly. In fact, I wanted to put to, the, to you a question that came from one of the participants. This is Monica Dasgupta, who says, what is the likelihood of improving national and international governance of health systems before the next pandemic, which could take place within a decade? And I'm glad you brought in the issue of antimicrobial resistance, because who knows what the next one is. So what's your take on that? Maybe just respond to Monica, uh, who's listening now, uh, Joseph. No, I think I was saying that earlier. Um, is it wishful thinking? Monica, you may think it's wishful thinking. I think the likelihood is very, very high this time. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's happening now, the point I'm trying to make, which is not rocket science, and I'm sorry you were wasting your time hearing things you knew already, but a lot of what the pandemic is telling us, please, it was there. We saw it in this continent and elsewhere with the financial crisis. We saw it with the refugee crisis. We've seen it. We have the same populations, the vulnerable, mm -hmm. suffering the most. We see the same nature reaction to some of the member states not cooperating with the others. We are in a globalizing world, not only because of the viruses, but because of the economy. So either we play together or we go down together. So I, I think now the key actors 
the IMF, the financial actors, those who we help, uh, we want to convince, are, uh, are paying attention, are paying attention to that. And they realize that either they play of that, yes. otherwise, this is about global security. This is about social sustainability. It's about financial sustainability. For the love of God, we're talking about what? 10 trillion? What is that 10 trillion? It must be what? Two, two thirds of the, the EU budget? The GDP? Yeah, I mean, it's just either we go and make those changes or the cost of the next one, the AMR, or many others we don't, we don't know, is going to be disastrous. Yeah. Well, Don't you think? I, I, I do agree, but you know, as it is with solidarity, I think it will also be with uh, governance that um, the changes and the the effectiveness of governance in the future will be will differ differ a lot. So with the solidarity, I think the strongest solidarity is still the nation state. Then we have the EU, and then we go to the global. And it's a little bit leftover solidarity. It's better what we had before, so uh, that's really great. But it's still not the same. And I think with the governance, we will see uh, a lot of improvement on the EU level. But, you know, that's not so difficult because the governance was not so good, actually. And member states always hesitated to mandate more powers to the EU, to the European level with regards to, to health and health systems. But I think this is changing at the moment. So we will have the strongest impact there. But also inside, inside countries, you know, I, I think that many countries acknowledge we still don't have the data infrastructure. We have neglected and underfunded our public health services. We have actually circumvented our existing emergency units, our existing emergency structures. You know, we need something else. Our policies were totally useless and uh, we had to change them twice uh, and so on. And I think there will be a lot of learning. And again, and I think that's, that's true what Joseph says. At a certain point in the pandemic in many countries, my impression was money doesn't play a role. They were throwing at it because the economic consequences are so huge, you know, that you say, I don't care whether we take, pay 18 euros per doses vaccine or 36. It doesn't make a difference in terms of uh, what we are losing at the moment. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm in good hope. As yeah. I say, I think we will have more in the EU level, some in uh, national level, and I cross fingers that internationally things will improve, but I'm not 100% sure. Thank you. Thank you, Matthias. You brought in the issue of financing, which I was going to ask about a little later. So if I can just get you to comment briefly on uh, communication now. Um, specific country success stories are usually accompanied by very high levels of public trust in government. What have we learned about the importance of timely communication at national and global levels? Joseph? Can I take this one? Yeah. <laughs> he's our communicator in the observatory, so there you are. So that way we disagree a bit. Yeah. I mean, there were, uh, actually I cheated earlier, actually my real, he voted, but my real, uh, my real vote would have been communication. So I had two lessons, remember, humility and humility. And then the next two lessons would have been communication and communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, uh, I think we had lots of, Lots of important lessons about trust, transparency, and um, and timeliness, as, as you already already we on the observatory talk about the three T's actually of, of communication. Uh, we have lots of lessons because, as I said earlier, mm-hmm. 
you know, transparency is no longer something that you spin, is no longer something that is a luxury. It's a matter of survival for politicians and scientists to present this transparency. So what have we learned? I, I wish we had time, and I hope you guys come to the work of the observatory where we've been looking at, in our COVID monitor, we've been looking at the strategies country by country. We're publishing a lot about exact details of how countries are doing to communicate, what kinds of mechanisms they're using, who are the communicators. But what would be the kinds of lessons? The first lesson is we all learn that in moments of crisis, Mm-hmm. science, policy, and politics becomes one. You don't, no longer can differentiate it. In my world of communication on, on researchers, my, my, Matthias is a good researcher here, is you do the science, mm-hmm. you then develop the policy, right? Mm-hmm. Linearly, and then there's the political validators and consequences. In practice, in crisis, it all comes together in one single, in one single uh, bundle. On the science side, first of all, we have, we have seen lots of evidence uncertainty. So how do we deal with this evidence uncertainty? I mean, let's face it, for instance, now, Matthias, is it based on evidence what we're doing between us? Actually, we should tell you that because we want to be in the same room, we both took a rapid test, okay? So we are okay. At least we're not, we not contaminating each other today. <laughs> but uh, do you know the amount of research that scientists have been put into, is it a meter and a half, is it two meters, is it three meters? Mm-hmm. This is your precautionary principle, my friend. I know. Do you know the amount of confusion about, is it a meter and a half? Is that making a difference? Should we wear a mask or not? Do you, have you seen the variability mm-hmm. of, between member states about wearing a mask? What is the reaction of our constituents, those who vote for the politicians, you know? Uh, well, they really don't pay attention. This is the source of infodemics. So, pro- pragmatism is important. Precautionary principle, there you are, we agree here, is extremely important in terms of communication. Look, look, if, if you want to have fun, look at the Spanish flu of uh, 1918. Guess what were the messages with not much evidence at that time? Wear a mask, wash your hands, close churches and schools. Yeah. took us a long time to make those decisions. Exactly. It was in 1918. Yeah. So that precautionary principle, I think, is a beautiful example of a precautionary principle, actually. But let me, let me, I like to extend a lot because on that one, because I think it's a lot of fun. So what other, we talked a lot about that, but, but uh, be aware of the political trade-offs that are necessary. Don't be arrogant as a scientist communicator. We had all these scientists communicating single-handed. Mm-hmm. which had their own cognitive biases, they had their own political values as well mm-hmm. that they didn't express. And our politicians are responsible and accountable for that to do political trade-offs. There are issues about education and closing the schools. There are issues about the economy. They are real. These, these policymakers, they are voted by the Dutch and they believe in individual freedom. They voted by the British that believe, some of them, about the, they're against a nanny state. Mm-hmm. These, these are reflecting all these views. So how do we get those trade-offs mm-hmm. transparent? And this is where politicians have learned, the good politicians have learned to say, these are my trade-offs and they're transparent. Actually, the Swedish, although didn't work very well, don't you agree? One thing they were very good, didn't work very well in terms of if you look at the numbers now, one thing they were very good at is was communicating the uncertainty and the trade-offs and, and the values 
quite well, acknowledging that the Swedes themselves believe very much in this individual yes. freedom. Don't you think? I, I think what we've seen is that countries have kind of opinion corridors, you know, things you can communicate, go through this corridor, but outside it's not possible. And in Sweden, I think they have these particular values of um, self-reliance and uh, responsibility and we don't overreact and we can handle this, and which is different in other countries. And I think that the UK and the US also have uh, quite different uh, value sets, you know, which make it much easier to communicate some of the opinions and views than others. Yeah. But having said this, I should, should say we shouldn't give in to this because we had in the past kind of opinion corridors which prevented us, for example, from doing health promotion and prevention, you know, fighting tobacco. Oh, it's a, it's a private choice, you know, tobacco smoking, um, alcohol, um, uh, highly processed foods and all this. I think it's understandable that there are cultural contexts and that countries need to take this into account and communicate. But cultural context does not necessarily mean it's good for the people, actually. Okay. So, yes, I'll just... there are ways, Lucy. There are ways. There are ways to good practices there. Yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, coordinating the communication, having one single source, we can we can illustrate that. In yeah. terms of agreeing the messages. Yeah. In terms of uh, political parties playing a very sort of. Um, uh, Supportive role in those decisions, not to play yeah. politics on the communication, yeah. uh, different political parties, different levels of government. So there's plenty of good practice on communication. And yeah. lack of good communication has been a total disaster for some of our member states. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. And actually, just building on what Matthias was saying about cultural, you know, the importance of cultural context here. Uh, just to mention that uh, beyond the European Union and beyond uh, uh, America and beyond the regions where the WHO six official languages are used, in Africa we have multiple languages. Uh, and, and therefore there has been challenges with passing on accurate COVID-19 related messages. Uh, I mean, this is an issue that was highlighted as a challenge with the Ebola response too. You know, people who, the first responders could, from the West could not speak the local language and that hampered significantly have hampered the response efforts. So meaning is often lost in translation beyond the wider, whatever the government wants to communicate. If in some settings, like the Africa settings I'm talking about, if they don't synthesize this, if they don't translate this to local languages, then you don't get it. And sometimes, unfortunately, pandemics like COVID-19 or maybe fortunately, they come with new jargon. There's social distancing. There's a, a mask. Um, which have no translation in local languages. I, there's no word for mask in my local language. And the word for social distancing in my local language almost means me just trying to stay away from everyone else. But that's not really what we want to communicate. And when that, uh, in a cultural context, then telling me to not visit my parents, not because we don't have a word for social distance, then that is not acceptable. And that could easily hamper um, any, any kind of pandemic communication. I just want to, you to take on two questions from, from the audience. There's um, Anna is here who says, were the high HR 2005 uh, followed in light of the COVID-19? And what role did communication play in this? And the second one, I'll just give you both. The second one from Juan says, why has there been so little policy learning and transfer in COVID-19? Could new forms of communication improve this? And with your role at the observatory as knowledge brokers, uh, I'm sure you have a lot to say on this one. 
Do I take the second? I take the second. I take the second. Which one was the first? <laughs> the first one was whether the IHR 2005 were followed in light of COVID-19. With IHR, International Health Regulations. Yes, yes. International Health Regulations, 2000. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, I think that, go ahead. Uh, the question was whether they will change, whether there will be follow-up. I think this is actually underway at the moment. I'm not an expert on it, but the two elements I know which are uh, highly debated is number one, that uh, WHO has more powers to go to countries and request information, which was one of the criticisms we, we received. And the other one is that the um, international health regulation, but please correct me if I'm wrong, Joseph, um, seem to have underestimated a little bit uh, the relevance of travel in certain times of the pandemic. So the international health regulation tried to keep borders open as long as possible. But if you, for example, as a policymaker, have an exclusion strategy, you want to exclude the virus from entering, like, for example, some Pacific islands have, have, have done, you know, or if you say we have an um, elimination strategy, you know, to really get it out of the country, there might be good reasons for closing the borders for a limited uh, period of time. Joseph? No, 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 no doubt uh, to, to our question. Uh, we will see those... Uh, strongly strongly strengthened. Uh, this is coming out now very soon by part of one of these commissions I mentioned by Ellen Clark, led by Ellen Clark, mm -hmm. former Prime Minister of New Zealand. And one of the areas that they're looking in a lot of depth is the, the international health regulations, how to enforce them uh, further, how to expand them further uh, in areas of, of transparency, of the speed of information and so on. I think that's uh, it's clearly one of those uh, global public goods element, a lot of debate these days, we're talking about governance, is uh, discussing about the, the, the global public goods and certain international health regulations are now at the core of all the debate. Yes, uh, we predict, we're sure that there's going to be a bonanza for international health regulations and we hope very much and we trust and we yeah. believe that with the role of WHO in playing that role, I think the role of WHO is getting massively strengthened now out of this debate. You have to go in communication or follow? Uh, new communication approaches? No communication approaches, yeah. New no, communication. No, 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 communication is fine. All right. The, the, the second question the was second question. the little policy learning, you know. <laughs> and um, I, 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 I'm, I'm not quite sure if this is true. The problem is um, countries are very forgetful, you know. Take, for example, uh, Germany and Belgium. Germany was uh, very good um, fending off the first wave of the pandemic, but then they forgot about it and they got back to normal politics and uh, they invited the virus back in. Mm -hmm. And uh, Belgium had severe difficulties with the first wave, but then managed to get out of it and then let go and uh, they forgot about it. So again, so um, uh, too late um, starting with measures, but not strong enough the measures, so uh, at one point in time, they do the right thing, and then later on, they do the wrong thing. And I think um, this is still because, of course, the, the, there are politics around. There's always somewhere an election, especially in federal countries. But um, there's also, you're looking so stern at me, you know. <laughs> there's always an, an, an election around. But there's also hope, you know, 
oh no, we got to pull out of this. Um, it won't be so bad, you know. Um, we are now doing the hammer and the dance. The hammer has come and now we dance away the, the next uh, waves, you know. And uh, there's, I, I think that in some countries, and again, we're coming back to the leadership thing, you know, the, if the leader is really saying it's not that easy, we need to keep our guards on, you know, we need to be very vigilant and um, slightest changes in the monitoring of the, of the, in the, in the metrics, you know, we need to react again and uh, communicating this, even though this is uh, not very popular. I think that is, that is key. And it has not worked in many countries. And uh, so I think the, what you said, Joseph, uh, earlier, the, the humility, but also being precautionary all the time, you know, and really reacting to changes in the, in the epidemiology, that is that is key for such a. Such I mean, pandemic. with hindsight as well, I think the debate now that the COVID nineteen suppression, uh, which is now sort of the big debate these days, would have been in hindsight what we should have done. Actually, before summer, we had a great opportunity to to go for more, much more radical measures, which would have probably managed to stop uh, the pandemic. I think uh, I think there we we probably got it wrong because, as you said, we played the. Uh, uh, the, the dance and hammer sort of um, uh, uh, game or curve, which hasn't quite quite worked. Uh, also because we haven't quite coordinated that and we still have open borders. So. so we are still talking about lockdowns and meaning completely different things, actually, you know, starting it at different uh, points in time, ending at different points in time, but also including different measures and implementing the measures in, in different ways, you know. And I think uh, that is also... An issue that sometimes, you know, as, as I said, we, we play this all policies in health game and then um, we can go to the hairdressers, but we cannot go to this or that shop and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And uh, in, in certain points in time in this pandemic, it really requires to be very, very serious. Yeah. Well, there's, we, we all seem to be learning on the on the feet, just learning, hopes, working with science, but also just again, like you said, some political decisions, health decisions, and I just, these two mixing in many ways. But I just like to want, I want to ask about financing now, and this is a huge one. So the notion that more health is equals to better health has been challenged by COVID-19. We all agree to that. And what have we learned from both ends of the spectrum? You know, wealthy nations with more established public health systems and less wealthy nations with less established uh, health systems. I think one. Yeah, you <laughs> this is one that, uh, indeed, uh, I think is. Um, I think. Let me echo. Let me echo your first point that uh, more wealth hasn't been more health in this particular case. Yeah. And it's fascinating how the um, the, the global security index uh, for pandemic preparedness actually we had the data for 2019. Yeah. Uh, was actually quite related to uh, to the economy. Mm-hmm. And, and the wealth, and actually, we almost see in some almost when you look at the the distribution, it's almost uh, almost a, a negative correlation uh, in which wealth clearly hasn't played the central role. I, I think there are many many elements that to do. That there are many. It's a fascinating area. There are many lessons. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps the one that. Uh, it's been uh, very important is that, uh, actually I go back to governance to you, uh, Matthias, which is, it's about, um, it's not as much only about the health system, 
But the political and economic and social context has been a lot about culture, it's been a lot about civil society. We we'll almost go back, uh, we are very repetitive today, I'm sorry, to, to the governance and to the communication. It hasn't, COVID uh, has responded, of course, yeah. to the health system and the capacity, but a lot of that has been the response of civil society, uh, the response of the way that we communicated uh, sort of a number of preventive measures. That's number one. Number two, I don't know if it's a wishful thinking, but we've been doing some research on that, and, and it seems that clearly, not it seems, clearly countries with universal health coverage, more or less rich, but universal health coverage, having a good integrated system, uh, avoiding fragmentation. Vietnam is a good example of not a very good, uh, very, very sort of um, rich country, or even Thailand, although Thailand uh, has some fragmentation still. Uh, countries in which they're not necessarily rich, but they manage the universal access very well, they manage the integration very well. Mm -hmm. So I think COVID has reminded us, it's not just about the amount of money, yeah. but uh, it's, it's about the, the, the universal coverage, it's about the governance, it's about the, the, the ability to integrate, the ability to deal with the fragmentation. I think that's been fundamental on the on the on the success of the of, of dressing with the pandemic um, but would you agree with that uh, Matthias? yeah I would agree with that and you know I mean let's make two things uh, more, more 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 clear one is you know we're now talking about um, rewarding actually nurses we were all clapping hands and now in some countries nurses getting um, quite disappointing offers for new pay packages and uh, actually that is a profession where we need to invest and I think that the COVID pandemic only and the crisis has only brought to light underlying issues we had over years and years. We have a lot of attrition, we have a lot of turnover in nurses, we have a lot of dissatisfaction with the job and um, we are losing many um, we are losing many uh, nurses, you know, prematurely actually doing th something something else. And this, I think, the COVID-19 crisis, where everybody has seen how important this profession actually is, how vital this profession is, you know, would have been the opportunity um, to, to in invest this. And I think that is important. That, and, and that's part of the finance, but also part of the civil society, because we are talking here about professional associations and uh, negotiating with this. And the other thing, which I think is very important, but probably when you come to the innovation, we'll talk about it. It's um, procurement, uh, financing innovations. Um, I mean, I think that we really need to change our system of purchasing, commissioning, procurement in times of crisis and maybe also in, in normal crisis. Because the way we are doing it at the moment, and that is true across the board, has led to intransparencies mm -hmm. and sometimes to inaccountabilities, actually, to an extent which is really problematic. And um, one of the milder cases, and really it's one of the milder cases, are the contracts between the Commission really and important. AstraZeneca mm -hmm. and the Commission and, and uh, the UK and AstraZeneca. In the end, they have at least published retracted versions but still, you know, from Latvia to Portugal, you know, we have still fishy things going on and a lot of well, well, Going back, uh, Lucian, your question on uh, 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 your point there is, is impeccable, as always, Matthias. Let me echo it further. Hasn't been the amount of money, but the flexibility 
and the ability to contract and allocate. We've seen that in our research, right, Matthias? The ability to, to pay, for instance, for some innovation, the ability to reward human resources, the ability to pay hospitals to deal with the additional investments of COVID, yeah. the ability to contract, the faster on your feet to put money into primary care and access, that's been as important as the amount of money. So it's quite interesting there. So the allocative efficiency elements, the having allocative efficiency in terms of sort of, I don't want to fall into jargon, in terms of your ability to allocate those resources to those bottlenecks mm-hmm. has been fundamental as much as the amount of money. Sorry, we should get the audience speaking. Yes, I want to put in a question from the audience, but also just was saying that I echo what you're saying. It's about the mix, the mix of how we allocate what we already have. But in many other settings where that basket is not yet enough, uh, for example, in many sub-Saharan countries where they, there was limited fiscal space to, ex- to, to expand in that limited period, what we saw is that the private sector actually came in in a big way. In the private sector here, I mean all non-state actors, individuals, corporations, uh, and just you know just the large stock of resources held by the private sector and their potential to come in and contribute to a pandemic response. So just pulling private resources for public good. Uh, and so they have stepped in in Africa, for example, to support national and regional bodies, which has been very commendable. Uh, in some regions, this has built on lessons learned from Ebola previously. Uh, for example, we had the Ebola private sector mobilization group. And, you know, there's lessons from that. Um, and, and I think ongoing, just for, for Africa, ongoing, I think the challenge will be then how, if we are thinking about all hands on deck for UHC, how then do we create the proper reg- regulatory environment or the proper environment where uh, or everyone can, can come in? And it's civil society. It's just everyone who's not the state in this case. Uh, but there's a question from the audience here. Um, Dechen asks, which should come first? Is it the economy or health during such tough times? And where do we draw the line considering issues such as double trouble? <laughs> Joseph, that, that's yours first, or Matthias. Thank you. That's, that's kind of you. <laughs> Can I go first? <laughs> okay. I think it's a wrong dichotomy. And I make a concrete example. We had last week a webinar on long COVID. Yeah. And we still don't know about the prevalence, you know, but we seem to know now is actually that also people which have had a mild COVID, you know, not being hospital, hospital, hospitalized, suffer from long COVID. Yeah. And we had four speakers and two of them had having long COVID and they are our age, are younger than, than us actually, much younger. And they have it for weeks and months. And if they are unhealthy for weeks and months, they are lost actually for the economy. And I think that the simple thing is, is it either health or is it the economy, you know? I think we need to, to see the linkages and how health and the economy are reinforcing each other. The idea that we can all get the virus and open the economy and then we will be rich and in two years' time we are dead and healthy, it's not working, you know. And uh, you were mentioning actually this old evidence from the um, Spanish flu in, in, in the US, which has exactly shown this as well, actually. So I'm unhappy, Matthias. Please. I'm unhappy That's because you stole my thunder. Not because of me. You okay. stole my thunder. I couldn't agree more. It's been a false dichotomy. I remember a blog who was talking about save grandma or save the economy. And I think you can, actually, by saving grandma, you're saving the economy. I think this has been highly manipulated. There are still trade-offs, though, Matthias. You, yes, there, there we, is, should not, we, we still need to consider. A billion of 
pounds because so many pensioners have died. Well, that's <laughs> terrible. That's terrible. That we was reported in the news. We, like we, we, we don't want to go there. But you know, the work of the observatory on the economics of healthy aging, we're actually been demonstrating that healthy aging, it's very, very good for the economy because the role that uh, aging playing society in terms of cohesion, in terms of sustainability, in terms of the informal work that our grandmas are doing, that they're not measured in the economy. It's very important, Lucy. But a lot of the, one of the pillars of work of the observatory is called the economics of healthy aging, where we've been demonstrating actually that uh, it's not true that getting our grandmas dying, we're saving money. We may not save money for the pension, and I know you're making it as a joke, obviously, uh, but actually when you look at the numbers and you look at their contribution in terms of cohesion, in terms of uh, informal work, they can get, it's usually grandma who takes care of granddad. Yeah. Often, yes. if your grandma is not around, yeah. granddad has to go into long-term care, which is very expensive for our for, for our economies. So we need to really nuance that far more than uh, that has been said by some economic actors. But there you are. Now we're going to agree. I agree with your answer. Thank you. At least we've come back. We know there's some argument at the end. You are in the same room, so it's important that you agree on issues. <laughs> uh, finally, and I think just one minute for each of you because we are running out of time. What, in your opinion, are the greatest innovations the COVID-19 crisis has catalyzed and, uh, and how sustainable are they? So I'll just do one minute from each of you, then I'll okay. just share something from the audience as we wrap up. Please. So I hope I'm not misunderstood as cynical, but I think that COVID-19 and the health system's responses to COVID-19 have really been a bonanza for innovation and implementing innovations. And I'm just mentioning four. Number one is um, the possibility of having Corona apps in countries which always had privacy issues, which were against health records, electronic health records, which for the first time had this uh, sort of device, you know, even though it didn't work very well, actually, it didn't make a great contribution to testing and tracing, but that was important. Second is we have seen in most countries the introduction of teleconsultation. Uh, tele which was a no-go in many countries where the, where the um, medical associations were against it. And now we have legislation for it. We have a change of scope of practice. We have um, financing instruments for it. That's great. The health workforce, we have seen, especially in the hospital sector, an extremely agile health workforce adopting new roles, new tasks, moving from ward to ward. And the final thing uh, I would like to mention is that um, it was already on its way, but it's becoming now much clearer that we are moving towards new public-private partnership in the development and uh, production of vaccines, medicines, tests, but also new public-public-private ship. And I, the, we all say that the, the quick development of these vaccines is a real, is a real, almost a miracle. But it's not a miracle because it's part of the support of government um, infrastructure, government uh, monies, and government safeguards. So that's just an overview that I think it's really worthwhile digging into uh, to retain some of this, of course. Thank you, Matthias. Thank you. And I, and I will agree with him. There you are. Today we're going to agree. Uh, but let me add some more elements. I mean, absolutely, Matthias. And, and we were looking the other day, you were running a webinar on, on Israel and the success in vaccines. The success in vaccination in Israel is partially due as well to their big data, to their health records. And so we see clearly those countries uh, we had um, uh, that had these innovations in place or they stepped them up, 
they had a, a much better success in doing that. We see organizationally that the, the, the mistake, Lucy, is always think about innovation, not gadget innovation, technology innovation. But as you're saying, organizational innovation, yeah. the skill mix, the way we got professionals working together, the way we got integrated and networks of hospitals, primary care working together. That's fascinating. So it's really interesting, Lucy, and we like our audience, our researchers to work with it, is the innovation in the introduction of innovation. So a lot of these innovations were there. Yeah. It's not rocket science. How long have we been talking about big data, about the health records, about yeah. telemedicine? Since I'm aware of myself, yeah. I'm an, uh, kind of an older man. Yeah. So why is it that in two weeks we got countries introducing telemedicine mm -hmm. and the purchasers jumped every single loop yes. to get doctors and hospitals paid for that? Yeah. How do we harness that energy, that capacity, that yeah. disruption? Yes. How do we maintain that? What happened there? Mm. Uh, and how we reproduce that? Of course, we shouldn't reproduce it by having a pandemic. Yeah. But, but let's look at the processes. Let's look at innovation in the introduction of innovation. That's what really should interest us because it is the process yes. and the innovation, the organizational innovation, how that was introduced, yeah. that really we should be studying it and trying to reproduce it, hopefully without having another pandemic, of course, not under duress. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for your input today. Um, I'll just say that as Dr. Moeti, the WHO our regional director for Africa says, recovering from this pandemic will be totally incomplete if we don't have strong measures to bolster health systems. So she says we must seize this opportunity. This is an opportunity and make the leap for a better tomorrow. So thank you very much. I'll, uh, just one comment here from the audience. They say that uh, two other priorities to add to our list would be equitable access to the health system and the fallout, the potential fallout of the crisis, you know, with mental health. And I think this is food for thought for all of us. So thank you for everyone. Uh, I will just hand over to Justin to wrap us up because I think we are out of time. But thank you very much. And thank you to your to our audience. That's all great. Thank you again to everybody. Uh, that was that was probably one of the easiest chair uh, chairing jobs I've ever been asked to, to, to take on. Lucy, you did a fantastic moderating job presenting the questions, feeding back some of the questions from, from the audience. Um, I, I see we have, you know, there were close to 200 people at one point. And so I think it's a shame we couldn't get to everybody's question, but everyone seemed to be really engaged and it was wonderful you can answer so many. Mm -hmm. So it's really been a great pleasure uh, to have the opportunity for me and I hope for everyone else uh, to listen to Lucy, Joseph and Matthias tonight. So thank you for taking part. Uh, we're really grateful that you could find time in your busy schedule to join us today. Um, for everybody out there, we hope you can check out the rest of the LSE Festival program. We've got a, an amazing series of live and pre-recorded events that are taking place up until tomorrow, Saturday, the 6th of March. And lastly, it's just uh, very important for me to give thanks to the LSE events and the Department of Health Policy Communications teams for really organizing and helping to run this event tonight. So ultimately, it's just left for me to say from all of us at the LSE, Please stay safe, and we hope to see you at one of our events again soon, be it virtually or hopefully in person in the not-too-distant future. So thank you. Thank you.